Hello and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats cast number 106. I'm Jeremy and always I'm joined with my co-host Jim Caselli of GatheringMagic.com and Ed Wynn of UnnamedGameStore.com. This cast as always is presented by CoolStuffInc.com and GatheringMagic.com who have partnered with us to give away free $25 gift certificates. With free shipping on orders of $100 or more and a sweet 25% buy list bonus, CoolStuffInc.com is the store for all of your magic <laughs> gathering <laughs> but, they, but they're there for that. How are you guys doing this week? Why did you just lose it at the end? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I'm so confused. I don't have um, Messenger, like another monitor. Don't have that set up with a Facebook group where people are sending memes while you're trying to record the intro to a podcast. That's not a good idea. I agree, but like, <laughs> I I just couldn't understand why it was so funny that the you know hundredth time you've said that, it's now all of a sudden amusing. Well, I'm sorry, Jim, but I'm enjoying this Monday because it has been a lovely day when it comes to the set value of M19. And uh, I believe there's currently four cards that are above like ten dollars maybe and there's not a single rare that's above like five bucks um do you guys think this is because the set isn't that good or do you think it's more because no cards have found a home yet i mean the set just came out and we don't really have that many like events with it so i don't know that people really necessarily know what to buy and that's Partially because this is kind of the like dead part of standard where like the next three months we're like everyone's waiting for rotation, and this is the set that has the least impact on the format because of where it falls in the year. So it's very possible that a lot of this stuff is going to get very expensive in like three or four months after Ravnica comes out. But right now it just kind of looks like a hodgepodge of things that people don't really know what to do with. I, I think that's the biggest part of it. Like, just because this is we're at the point where standard is at its largest, and we're also probably at the point where standard is the least interesting. I think those two together just make it very, very hard for people to want to be basically opening product and actually like you know trying out new things. Um, like, if we look at the standard results from this past weekend at Star City, like, granted, it was a team event. Standard is not the focus but it seems like a lot of people are just kind of trying out the same things there's nothing like there's no new archetypes there's nothing new that came of um that came out of uh m19 that wasn't already there like there's a lot of like minor upgrades there's a lot of, there's like some new sideboard cards or side grades what have you there's like interesting reprints in omniscience crucible and scape shift but, excuse me but beyond that um there's, there's like no reason that these cards should be any more expensive than they are right now. Yeah, and for what it's worth, the only card I saw that was put in our modern 5K this weekend from M19 was um, the Amulet of Warding, I think it's called. It gives opponents creature tokens negative one, negative zero. And if a source would target you, you have to pay one more for that uh, target to resolve. Uh, so a lot of people brought that in against stuff like Burn and Monor and, and uh, Mardu Pyromancer, and that's a card that could have Eternal Legs 
when it finally bottoms out and have a similar trajectory to something like Graphicker's Tape, where it only sees modern play and the price is predicated on that as it rotates out. Um, similar to something like Tireless Tracker, though that's a little more uh, played in Legacy, it's just a card to keep an eye on as people try to combat Mardu and Burn and Modern. Um, other than that, Scape Shift is dropping. I'm very, I think, I don't know if Jim plays that in EDH, but I'm very happy about that card's trajectory. And I'm really waiting for Crucible. I, I think Crucible hits 5 to $7. I really think it can. Um, the reason being, at, as we, uh, we go into the summer and start looking towards the fall, when everything rotates from Amonkhet and we don't have stuff like zombies anymore that people can play for a couple of months and new decks come out, people are going to be opening, um, what's it called? They're going to be opening M19 to get cards for their decks, or vendors will be opening M19 boxes in order to um, satiate demand when some of these cards start spiking. And I don't think that the amount of people that want crucibles is gotten to the point where it's equal to the amount of crucibles that have been opened. And I think we're just going to continue to see the set plummet. Not as far maybe necessarily as Shadows over Innistrad did in Standard, but it's something to keep an eye on for specifically Crucible and um, Scapeshift. Am I crazy in my assessment of where a Crucible will end up, or where do you guys see it uh, hitting now that we're starting to see the first week's numbers? Um, I'm feeling like it's still going to be more expensive than Scapeshift because it's a reasonably good commander card where, like, Scapeshift only gets played in decks that are trying to do, like, really weird niche things. It's not just kind of a catch-all. Um, like, the only deck that, like, really, really, really wants Scapeshift, or I guess there's two, is, like, Titania or the Gitrog monster, like, stuff that, that cares about putting a bunch of lands in their graveyard. Whereas Scapeshift's just like, or sorry, uh, Crucible's just kind of a, a good card, and it's colorless, which means it could go in pretty much any deck. I'm not sure how low it will get. Like, $5 feels like every single Commander player will ever will buy it. But then on the flip side of that, like, every single Commander player is notoriously bad at, like, noticing when cards are a lot less expensive than they used to be. Like, I have almost an exclusively Commander playing um group of friends now and i have to constantly remind them hey uh you should buy a coalition relic if you don't have one because you know they were like four or five dollars now when they used to be like 30 you know you're you're going to play them at some point in time you should just buy one or two so that you have them that being said because it's in standard maybe more people be aware of its price tag but i don't know like this set seems like it has a lot of cool casual stuff that will eventually be expensive but it doesn't really have any like format-defining cards that can help to keep the price up. I think the biggest thing to note about like like these two cards, Omniscience is also another one that falls in this category, is uh, they basically fall very heavily into the cards that or the category of cards are expensive because they're scarce rather than uh, cards are actually good or actually have demand. Like, if we think of these three cards, uh, Scapeshift, this is the first time reprinting. The last reprint, or the original printing was in 2007 with Morning Tide. Uh, Crucible was in 5th Dawn, which was 2002, and then reprinted in 10th uh, uh, Edition, which was 2008. 
I want to say 2008, 2009, and then there's obviously a very, very expensive masterpiece printing uh, with Aether Volt last year. And then Omniscience has only had one printing, and that was M13, I think, so 2012. Like, that just kind of speaks to, like, how old some of these cards are and basically inaccessible to most people who would have wanted them if they basically weren't willing to, like, pay for it. Um, so I think, like, just, like, having a reprint, like, any reprint at all, even a Mythic Rarity, is probably going to be, like, the death nail for these cards. I basically see all these being sub ten dollars and not really ever going to recover beyond that but like uh, uh, for quite some time obviously like like we would need like the tight breach decks or whatever to uh to like see a huge surge in modern or what have you in order to in order for like scape shift to like climb up beyond what it is and even if it does it's likely that other cards like you know we see Valka be kind of the uh the choking point at this point, uh, like cards like Tire Strike would probably go up as a result. Blood Raid Elf would go up as a result, but Scape Shift, I don't think, has a lot of room to basically recover a price. Yeah, that's a good point you made, Ed. Like, Scape Shift, I think, is the card that you can look at the most if there's like a reprint of the other expensive cards in the deck. Like, if we see a reprint of Through the Breach of Primeval Titan and a Valica, the rest of the deck is not very expensive, right? Like, it's just a bunch of mountains, forests, and land searching spells. So after you reprint those cards, that, that deck becomes very cheap. That could cause people to buy more scape shifts. Um, but of course, it depends on how many, you know, through the breaches they actually end up printing. Like, if it's a mythic and a master set, maybe that doesn't move the needle enough. But if it's like a mythic in like a standard set for some reason, like it could definitely cause that deck to become very budget friendly. Yeah, and it was real interesting as someone who was running a booth this weekend to determine what I wanted to buy scapeshifts at. And it's specifically, a lot of people opened up promo scapeshifts, promo Tezzerix, and promo Crucibles. And I was very um, bullish on uh, the promo Crucibles. But when it came to, um, when it came to like a foil scape shift or something, I was like, what do I really want to pay on this? Like, where is the demand going to be to keep that uh, card afloat? There's only so many customers that will want to pay the current price um, for that card. And this is actually Ed's topic that he had just brought up. So I'm giving the full credit to him, but Nexus of Fate is a $17.5 card. And if you look on TCG, there's some shops that are selling an absurd amount of them where they, they may have just bought a bunch back or like they may have taken the money grab where it says like license brick and mortar and then they have like 30 or 40 copies on TCG as of yesterday at least. Um, that is an insanely high promo. This is what a lot of people, when they saw Fire Song and Sunspeaker, they said that this was setting a dangerous precedent. And this... This isn't very good for the economy. Um, Ed asked me if I had bought any Nexus of Fates. We actually did end up buying between 8 and 10 of them. I believe it's $10 each, and they instantly sold as soon as we got them in. Uh, the demand for that card in EDH specifically for my customers is very high. Ed, what have you noticed with the Nexus of Fate promo, uh, being overseas on vacation right now or just at home? Uh, um. Over here, Nexus of Fate is pretty expensive for some unknown reason. Uh, it's much more expensive here than it is in America. 
not sure how long that arbitrage opportunity is going to last, but it's like more than double what it is in America. Um, so it's you kind of have this weird dynamic where basically people are paying, buying a box or whatever, and recuperating like close to like twenty five to thirty percent of the cost on the booster box itself in the uh, the Nexus of Fate promo. Um, so it's been a kind of an interesting dynamic. But uh, that was why I was asking if you had any, because you can bring them over here, and shops would be more than happy to pick them up from you. Um, uh, in, in, in the event that we have any listeners who are actually coming out and they do have these, uh, if you want to, if you're looking to move them, Japan is definitely the place to do that right now. Unlikely, it'll last after this weekend. I imagine that with influx of uh, overseas vendors coming in and uh, bringing them, it's unlikely that the price will that there will be a huge price difference. But it remains to be seen on one whether the mana this card will actually stay high. Because it does seem like a reasonably powerful card, uh, it seems like there would be far more demand for this card than um, uh, Fire Song. But that does remain to be seen. I think there's still a little ways to go, but that's just what I've noticed uh, since I've gone to Japan since I got here Friday morning, I think, and that which was the release day for Core 19. And that was just what I noticed like initial release day. Something I noticed... Um because I never run modern events ever is the price of some of these modern cards. Um, like Tarmogoyf is like $54 now. I think a reprint knocks that sucker down to a $20 bill. I think it's just more of a price memory at this point, even with the influx of Rug Delver and Legacy. And Valkid is insanely expensive. And we could not keep that card in stock. Uh, it's like $20 on TCG, and every time we got a copy in, people would just um, trade for it. Same with Mox Opal, but that has a lot of format implications versus something like Valkit. Uh, so it's just interesting to keep in mind. A lot of people are selling out now, it feels like, when reserveless prices are high and a lot of other stuff is falling. And I agree with Ed that at this time, it's probably best to be buying cards at whatever buy list is and then just holding them until uh, next year. And you may be able to get better opportunities as we head towards November again, but it's it's at that point where, and actually we had a couple of listeners talk to Doug and I about it this weekend at the booth. Um, they spent too much money in the last couple of months and they weren't prepared for the amount of people trying to sell cards uh, over the summer. And because they budgeted incorrectly, they had to either give up equity on what they had bought or they um, were, had to turn collections down because they just couldn't afford to buy a bunch of collections. So it's just something to keep in mind as we continue to, every week with these seasonal trends as we, we try to help you guys out with uh, stretching your dollars the farthest that they can go. Nothing to say to my ramblings, guys. Well, I don't own a shop, so I don't really have that same perspective. Yep. Um, something to note for our casual listeners, and I believe we've said this before, Commander twenty seven or Commander Anthologies two, you can still find for pretty cheap at most local game shops, and I think that's a good buy up to about a hundred and fifty, a hundred and sixty dollars. Um, if you open up what you can even buy list all the cards to place like Card Kingdom for, you're almost breaking even at that point. And if you're actually playing EDH and you intend to break those cards apart and like play with some of them and then throw a bunch in, the, in a box, I think it's one of the better um, 
casual investments you can make at this time because once again anecdotally a lot of those 50 to dollar cards can spike on a lot of vendors buy list because they need to get them back in stock and you can take advantage of that if you just have a box of stuff you know is worth buy listing for anywhere between dimes and 50 cents each and a long row of 50 cent cards can be turned into an underground sea or a, a couple of booster boxes for you and your friends to draft with. So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, a lot of people put these commander cards in their bulk because they assume seeing a uh, common symbol or an uncommon symbol that they're not worth anything. And then you get things like um, swift foot boots, lightning greaves, or the $7 two mana rock that uh, makes you have no maximum hand size that no one can never keep in stock that Jim probably knows what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. But I forgot the name. Thought Vessel. That card sells out every time we get it in. And a lot of people are putting stuff like that in their bulk because they're assuming that it's an uncommon. So if you're buying cards from a friend or something, or if you're going digging through your local flea market, be on the lookout for some of these commander commons and uncommons because they're definitely worth picking up if you can find a good buy. You guys want to get into our question of the week and our credit winner of the week? Sounds like this a good segue. This is a good question, too. So It's a very good question, and I will let Jim read it because I don't have my microphone this week, and I don't know how much uh, our listeners can take of my audio. I mean, it definitely sounds like someone is, like, jumping into, like, a pool of papers every, like, five to seven seconds. So I think they'll appreciate me. I'm pretty sure most of us can't handle your voice, but, yeah, here we are. Uh, (laughs) Coming in with the heaters this week. Uh, so Dustin Wilk asks, how do you keep track of your speculation buys? Do you have a spreadsheet with each, with your entry price on each card? How do you keep track on what you paid on large quantities of a single card? Thanks. Um, so I'll go first. Most of the time when I'm buying a lot of something to speculate on, uh, I'm usually buying it from TCG players. So I'll obviously have the records there of what I've purchased and how much I paid for it. Um, if I buy them outside of that, I usually will put a little sticky note on the on the top loader or the package or whatever that says like how many I purchased and at what price. But I don't really have a spreadsheet that I that I keep track of. Most of my buys are pretty short term, and I just know what number I want to get rid of them at. Uh, slightly different for me. It depends. Um... Generally, if you're picking up cards at buy lists, um, it doesn't matter. If you're buying cards in mass on TCG Player, I imagine you're in it for the long haul. So in theory, it also shouldn't matter. Um, like if I'm buying like you know like 200 copies or something of you know a card that I'm paying like 20, 25 to 50 cents on, right? Like the price needs realistically needs to be like like three to four dollars in order for me to get out of it. At which point, I know like. I've already made money on this. I don't actually care what my initial buy-in was. Um, for more expensive things, like when I was buying up masterpieces, I actually did keep up a spreadsheet, and I was keeping kind of like a running tally on what I had paid on each one, and it would just basically give me like an average cost. Like if I'd spend like a hundred dollars on two of them, and then like a hundred, uh, like hundred fifty dollars on two of them, my average price is one hundred twenty-five. I would just kind of keep. I would just kind of keep track of that, and then the next one I buy, if it's like you know, one hundred fifty dollars again, then it raises my average probably up to like one thirty or what or whatever. Um, 
that's kind of the extent to which I keep track of uh, of my buys, but I'm kind of past the point of doing that. Um, realistically, the only things I really keep track of why I paid on them is uh, like things that cost like four digits, not like power or like expensive reserveless cards, graded cards, etc. Um, mainly because I I'm like you have tighter margins on those, so you kind of want to be keeping track of what you paid for them but beyond that like i'm i'm generally less concerned with the prices on specs uh mainly because in theory um if it's something small like and you're trying to spec on it then it's already sunk costs what you do with it actually doesn't matter long term um like if the card isn't going where then it's like you paid bulk okay you're going to break even on it that's the worst case scenario um if it does go up then you are you always start cashing out and it what you paid for it initially doesn't matter anyways so it was just a little bit more work than what i cared to do for keeping track of all my specs and i think like while the information is useful it's not entirely necessary as it were i mean i personally gave up after a couple of years because i as many people who have met me in real life can attest to without saying a bunch of mean things that are probably true I'm very forgetful about stuff, and uh, I will like forget where boxes of cards are for like a half a year, and then find them when they're about to rotate out of standard. Um, I do keep track of exactly how much money I spend on Magic as a business expense, and then I keep track of exactly how much money is um, coming in as well through spreadsheets. Um, so that's the easiest way for me to keep track of it is how much did I spend this month? What were my expenses? And then how much did I make? And what do I need to set aside for taxes at the end of the year? Um, so that's that's the big thing for me, especially for a lot of people who are spending a couple thousand dollars a year on magic. Um, just having a receipt on how much you spent on a magic card when it does come time for you to either sell your collection or like pay for a car, pay for trip that you want to go on with one of your uh, significant others, something like that, where you're selling like a thousand to two thousand dollars worth of cards. If you do report that to the IRS, it helps to have those receipts to show that you've sunk cost into it. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind. Um, the only thing, so a lot of times what will happen is, and I know basically every Grand Prix vendor does this, so you'll have a card and you'll have what you want on it. So I have a Queen Mox Emerald here that I wanted 1700 on. Then on the inside of the sleeve is the number of how much I paid on that card. That's only for uh, high-end cards specifically. So most of the time when I'm when I'm keeping track of my speculation buys, it's more of a how much did I spend buying cards this month versus how much money is coming in. And that's the easiest way for me to keep track of it. I use Excel, I use physical books as well, and I use some other software um, besides an actual accountant. So that's that's the best help I can give you. Uh, to you, Justin. Jim? I went first. I already explained what I did. Were you not paying attention, Jeremy? Nope. Like Man, I said, I'm very forgetful. You're such a nice guy. I'm like so I glad said, we I'm have you on this cast so you can listen to us talk about stuff. Uh, every night, Jim, I put on this cast before I go to bed, and I just play your parts on a repeat. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> You need to find a better meaning in your life. Yeah. Um, so, so, do you, 
Yeah, go for it. Oh, I was going to say, so Dustin, uh, thanks for the question. Uh, please send me a message on the Cartel Aristocrats Facebook page or Twitter account, and I will give you your $25 gift certificate to CoolStuffInc.com. If you'd like to win next week, you can leave a question on our page on CoolStuffInc.com, and uh, if we choose your question, you can win some sweet store credit. And we're just going to touch on another viewer question this week as well. David Moore, who is a avid listener of this cast, um, is trying to sell cards for the first time online. And he asked us, when first getting into selling through social media like Facebook or Twitter, how do you start with not having any references? Like when people ask you for references when you're trying to sell cards online, how do you respond when you barely have any? He wants, a, he wants tips on how to break into the social media selling scene. If there, if there is a way to do that. Um, I think all of us have sold cards online before, especially for the first time. So what were some of the tips you guys used when you were first starting out selling? Um, I mean, most of the time you can start out by selling on eBay or TCG Player, where you know obviously those, those uh, companies will keep you accountable for any problems. So... After you've gotten feedback on those sites, you can link to people be like, hey, I don't have, you know, maybe like personal references, but you can see my, you know, merchant account on TCG Player or eBay, and they can see that you have positive reviews and whatever. I mean, social media, the very nature of it is just relying on good faith or what have you. You want to do things to protect yourself. I'm sure, you know, there are things that you can do to protect them. If you're just starting out, I would not suggest saying, hey, I can only take gift right away. Um, that, that'll just kind of like immediately raise red flags. Um, <clears throat> like you just want to make sure like you're protecting yourself, making sure that if you're going to, if you're going to send to them that they're reputable, that you have that, you know, they're not just some random idiot trying to scam you. Be just be ready to like add the four percent in, or just take the four percent hit on your card and just price it accordingly, and just make sure like you know, hey, you know, I, I only deal with goods and services, and then just take the hit. Uh, that'll give them a little bit of peace of mind, rather than you trying to cheap out on like three percent or whatever uh, to save on uh, fees. Not that I would suggest anyone ever do that, of course. Um, it's just like, you know, usually I imagine like you'll probably have like some friends vouch for you just as kind of like ones so that people know, like, you know, you're a bot, you can do things like timestamp your cards, make sure that, you know, they're getting the real thing, be prepared to give up like high res images. If people want a closer look, uh, communication is very good. Most people are, are, you know, reasonable humans. If you have good communication, you offer a good product and you're like talking to people and just being very fair. Like generally, you like will just not have a bad experience. So, um, it, the, like it's use a lot of common sense things. Just make sure, like you know, you're protecting yourself. Send with tracking. Um, I would shy away from like plain white envelope, mainly because it it is a way of saving money. But if you're looking to build reputation early on, then the amount like the small bath that you take you know, just sending out a bubble mailer with tracking is going to be relatively small compared to someone who would have a negative experience with you for the first time or someone who's looking for an opportunity to just, you know, scam you out of cards because you sent plain white envelope or whatever. Yeah, I agree with that there. If you're selling for the first time, I'd probably try to sell things that are worth sending with tracking. 
Um, don't send like one or two dollar cards that you really only break even if you send it plain white envelope because uh, the easiest way to get people to maybe this sounds bad, but the easiest way to people to 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 trust you is to send stuff with tracking so they have the ease of mind of you know knowing when it's coming. I think another tip that um, a lot of people do that I see lately on Facebook groups is what they'll do is they'll say you send first or they'll say send it to a third party like an admin for like an additional fee. Um, the you send first is only good if like you look at their profile and it's obviously not fake. Uh, but you can always send like a moderator of any of the Facebook groups and like you lose like a dollar or two, but it's better than just getting completely stand out of sending first. Plus, you then have the mod vouch for you when you start posting in that group again. So it's just something to keep in mind as well that they haven't mentioned that I've seen people do lately. Um, I think that's pretty, the only other way would be like, have your local store do it. Uh, like go to your local store and be like, hey, can you ship this card for me? Because you have references. Um, and I wouldn't personally do it because it's not worth my time, but I'm sure if you were like, uh, a good customer of that shop and like you still give them business rather than like you're competing against them, they probably wouldn't have a problem with it. That sounds like a questionable thing to try to do. I would just, if I was the store, I would just try to buy the card from you. Right, but I've seen shops in our area do that where it's, hey, I literally have zero references. So for example, uh, actually, great, great example. Someone, one of my local players, won second place in the SCG Duel for Duels uh, competition. So he got like 20, 20, 15 to 20 duel lands for winning that. But he had no references and he wanted to sell them online. So he went to his local shop and some of his friends and they vouched for him and sold his cards for him and took a small cut. Um, that's like a weird example because you have to be good at magic, which like I'm not uh, in order to do that. But it's another way for some people to get rid of their higher end stuff when they may not have every re any references um, specifically. So thank you for the question, David. Any anything else you guys want to touch on? Um, well, I, I just like a kind of like a news update thing. Um, Wizards of the Coast last week told us what kind of themes are in the commander decks for this year but they didn't actually spoil any cards yet. Um, there are some cards that could be worth money, but I wouldn't buy anything until we know everything that's in the set first. So, for example, um, the, the four decks are Blue Red Artifacts, John Delands, Bant Enchantments, and Esper, top of your deck, whatever that means. Um, and like, there are some of the things that are like pretty obviously very, or, or, or on, or likely to be very good in these decks, but I wouldn't rush out to buy them just yet because they might be included as reprints. So like, for example, um, the John deck could have a Gitrog monster in it. It's the kind of card that would be good in that deck. Um, if it's not in that deck after we see all the spoilers, then that could be a good card to buy. But commander players are kind of slow uh, as far as like purchasing things ahead of time. So you'll see last year when um, Atraxa was spoiled, there wasn't really a big 
surge in the price of doubling season, but after the decks were released, it like went up an extra 20 bucks because everyone decided they needed another one. So uh, even though it sounds like a better idea to like go out and buy a bunch of cards to put that could be good in these decks, like you could buy like all the blue and green or the, all the white and green enchantress cards. I don't think that that's a good idea because they're more likely like you'll lose more money if they reprint it than you could get if they don't. Yeah, I don't know how they like. On one hand, they made it seem like they were super specific on what archetypes were going to be in there. But on the other hand, we, we don't really have a clue on some of these archetypes. Like, the top of your deck matters. Does that mean they're reprinting Miracles? Is that re like, are they reprinting something like Predict? We don't know. And it's really hard for us to narrow it down. This may be in response last year when they were like, okay, we're doing tribes, and these are the tribes. And then, like, everything that was good in those tribes just immediately got bought out. Um, like, that one uncommon cat from future site like spiked to seven dollars just because they're like all right we're doing a cat deck it didn't matter if it was good or bad in it it just spiked immediately um, so i like that they're keeping it a little more vague but you also have the opportunity if you go in on stuff like avenger of zendikar lands matter in the jun deck um, to get completely blown out when they reprint it so it's it's just something to keep in mind um, i can't like there's no real predictions any of us can make because almost anything we say that isn't on the reserve list can just blow us out if we go deep on it. And it's also too late probably to react until we actually get news of what exactly is in the deck, and then we can react to uh, what does it combo with that's been sitting in both boxes for like 15 years. So that's my take on the on the spoiling of that stuff. Does Ed have anything to add? All right, you guys want to get into pick of the week? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Ed, as is custom, you are first. Uh, in terms of M19, I don't really see anything that's worth jumping into right now. Um, I'm still kind of looking at standard cards, trying to figure out like what would be exciting. Uh, in terms of like what there is to buy, I'm pretty sure like I've mentioned like every reasonable mythic in some form or another recently um i think i like if i had to pick one it would probably be like rekindling phoenix that card just seems like it has a little bit too much value um like i'm pretty sure i've said all these words before but i like where rekindling phoenix is at even it's unlikely that mono red like would be the best deck since we are losing uh Hazret, Torture Chandra, Kerry Zev, uh, PNLR. These like are kind of cards that make up the backbone, and it's probably too much of a blow. But we've seen Rekindling Phoenix kind of slot into things like Grixis Midrange, kind of like these controlish, like slower decks that kind of take advantage of just like decurring nature and the fact that it's good both as a uh, blocker and an attacker. Um, we've seen this card be much more expensive than before. I think it's hovering. It's down to like 25-ish dollars. I don't see it getting much cheaper than that, mainly because Rivals also wasn't a heavily open set. Um, and obviously it doesn't take much to basically put them on a red deck back together, uh, mainly because some of the better components are still there. You still have like Goblin Chain Whirler, like you're losing the vehicles, but you still have like 
you lose a braid, which is probably a big hit, but uh, lightning strike is still in the set. Um, TG actually has this at like twenty dollars. That's basically the lowest it's been in quite some time. So I think like if if you're looking to hedge and you want to kind of stay ahead of the curve and just have something ready for standard, I think spending eighty dollars right now just to get rekindling Phoenix out of the way just so you own a set is probably not the most unreasonable thing you can do. Um, in terms of uh, some not-standard card, um, I'm still watching Masterpieces. They've definitely started rebounding, and I'm starting to see a similar trend where a lot of them are dwindling in supply online. Um, the ones that are going to get hit probably haven't been hit yet, uh, mainly because not everyone got expensive right away. So there are things like... Um, like attrition is kind of uh, a commander favorite, and it did it did go up from like twenty dollars to thirty six dollars. Supply is kind of high, so I don't know if I would be ready to dig in. But those are the types of cards that I would be most interested in masterpiece wise, and just kind of watching supply and keeping track of movement on those. Um, mainly because if you do have a chance to buy them, uh, cards are generally just kind of lower at this time of year mainly because people want money for things that are not magic. Uh, so if you're looking for some place to park your money, like I would either look at post-rotation standard mythics and staples or masterpieces right now. And those will probably be my picks for basically until September, until there's something that like dramatically changes in the market. Is it my turn? So my pick of the week this week is um, one of the cards from M19 that seems to be selling a lot, but isn't very expensive, which is uh, Sarkhan's Unsealing. Um, it's a slightly less expensive, slightly less restrictive version of uh, Where Are the Ancients Tread, I think is the name of the card. Yeah, no, sorry, Wear Ancients Tread. So there was an old card called Wear Ancients Tread. It's a five-mana red enchantment that deals five damage whenever you have a guy that has five or more power enter the battlefield. Um, it was part of the, the Naya theme, and, you know, it's fine. It's it's okay in Commander, and it has been reprinted, so it's not worth very much money. But Sarkhan's Unsealing cares about four or greater, and... Um, Gets especially good when you have a seven power guy because it's basically uh, a wrath of god for everyone else. So I think that casual players are going to really start to pick up on this once they get blown out by it once. Um, cards that have high power and are popular, like this is a this is the kind of casual card that will be like probably never played in standard, but like. Will very slowly be like three dollars in like two or three years because they just don't stop printing cards that make large creatures. Like this is not a thing that happens. So I don't know. I'm I'm pretty excited about Sarkons Unsealing. I bought a foil copy for myself because I can see it going into a lot of my decks. Um I might actually buy another one now that I'm thinking about it because I'm thinking of like more places where it's quite good. Uh, if you are not happy with that, uh, the other thing that I would say that you could probably consider is, uh, I think it's called Runic Armasaur. It's the 3-mana 2-5 from this M set. 
Uh, it reminds me a lot of um, Corsair of Crufix style cards, where it's like very defensive, helps you stabilize the game. It doesn't give you the card advantage. That's so obviously not as well. It doesn't give you the card advantage in the same kind of way. So I don't think it's as good. However, uh, it has five toughness, and there are no red spells that deal five damage yet. So I think that in the coming rotation, um, having five toughness on the ground could be a standard all-star and could be very expensive. And it's only uh, like 250 right now, so it's pretty cheap to buy. If you play standard, you should get that one. If you don't play standard, you should get Sarkhan's Unsealing. Yeah, I've definitely been hearing a lot of uh, EDH shedder about that card, so I think it's, uh, it's a really good pick, Jim. I, I really like, and I know I called this, what, like two years ago? We've seen Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger go up quite a bit since it rotated out of standard. Um, obviously, Embercool's banned, but it's still going up. Kozilek the Great Distortion has done literally nothing for... What feels like four years, three or four years at this point, and in my opinion, it's got to start going up at some point. Uh, maybe not on the same level that the other two have, especially with the Emrakul ban, but it's just something to keep in mind because Bylas on this card is still super low, um, so it won't be a giant uh, investment of your money or time, but I feel like Someday someone's going to break his discard ability in some sort of deck, or maybe we see wastes again. Um, and it's just something that this card seems too powerful to, for the price that it is at. And the EDH decks that play Kozilek that have like Grim Monolith and all that are just almost impossible to beat uh, for the semi-competitive games. Not the true competitive games, but for people who own a lot of cards but aren't tier 1 EDH or 100% EDH. The deck's really freaking powerful, so it's just something to keep in mind um, when you're going through that. Um, the other thing is Fatal Push is finally starting to just die uh, as we go towards rotation. Its price is getting more and more based on modern and legacy play, and Bios have dropped a couple of dollars in the past couple of months while this card's going on. Um, while this card's uh, about to rotate, sorry. I think this goes down to... $3 post-rotation with a $1.50, $2 buy list, and recovers very fast to $5 after a year of being out of standard. Um, this is a card that's pretty ubiquitous across most internal formats, and it's something to just keep in mind uh, as the next path to exile that you don't want to face. So that would be my pick of it. I think that's a reasonable one. I think it's kind of like it has seen an F and M uh, printing, which is like kind of popular. So like, but foils are still reasonably expensive. It doesn't feel like it sees a ton of play in modern anymore, uh, based on where like the modern format is kind of headed. <clears throat> and legacy is like kind of up in the air still. So we'll have to see. But I think like it's reasonable. Like you don't own your set yet. Like this is probably going to be as good of a time as ever to buy it, especially for like the people who are like standard and draft types only that don't really care about the eternal formats due to like money or time or whatever. Um, I think that's a reasonable one to get and buy. There's definitely plenty of cards that fall into that category. Just like Kaladesh, uh, Kaladesh through Hour of Devastation standard cards where um, 
they're basically going to bottom out. People are just going to continue to dump them. Chandra is probably like a reasonable pickup. It will. It continues to see a, like uh, old school, old not old school, um, eternal play. Jesus in like modern and legacy, legacy in like the um, the mono red prison deck, and then standard uh, legacy or modern Jesus in like Jund and various um, various decks that kind of want to play mid range game. But like Chandra is down to like ten dollars ish now and down from like what it was like 35 at one point kind of when it's in peak it's peak and standard so lots of reasonable pickups if you just want these cards and you've been waiting for them uh to drop and you don't really care about like you know obviously you, you probably don't care about standard anymore if you're looking to pick them up now so not not a bad time to pick up on these cards as they rotate because once they do rotate and they basically disappear from people's binders you're going to kind of be hard pressed to get them again without like going to online or something Anything else you guys want to add before we wrap up this week? No, I think we did a good job. All right, where can people find you guys? I'm at Edwin13 on Twitter. Uh, I'm in Japan this week, so any of our listeners overseas, I will uh, see them in GP Chiba. I'm flying to Minneapolis next weekend. I will be with Caffrey at Tales of Adventure. And... uh, what is the week after that? Gen Con. I'll be at Gen Con for the entire weekend as well. Um, so I'll see you guys everywhere, I guess. Everywhere, something like that. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, I have to see Jeremy as well. So I went in Chiba this weekend. We'll both be there. I will be at all three events that Ed is at. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> bloody hell. Jesus. I didn't plan say, this. Never aren't lucky. you excited to see me in a couple of weeks? Dude, I'm hyped. Uh, Florida in August. I'm going to die. It can't possibly be worse than where you are right now. True, but I try and not go outside. So I, I know. I agree. I don't like it. And, and we also don't have to walk very far. Like Food plus store is all within like a three-minute walking radius. Yeah, but I could just get in a car and walk even less. I don't know. It's not. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I've lived here for a little bit now. Where can people uh, find you? My name is Jim Pasai. You can find me on Twitter at phrst underscore. You can find me on Gathering Magic every other week, uh, and you can find me at GP Orlando next month if you're there. I'm Jeremy. I wanted to thank all the cartel fans that came out and. Um, said hi at my 5K, especially because I was wearing a Brainstorm Brewery shirt the entire time uh, <laughs> with Doug. Um, Way to represent our podcast, yeah. asshole. <laughs> I, I'll be at GP Chiba as well with Ed. Then I will be at uh, GP Minneapolis with Ed. Then I will be at Gen Con with Ed. And then I will also be at the Pro Tour in Minneapolis the same weekend. I haven't figured out which days I'm going to spend at which event, but I'll be at both. Uh, events. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening to Cartel Aristocrats. You can find us on Twitter at cartel underscore finance. You can leave questions since you guys got it right this week on gatheringmagic.com when this episode comes out tomorrow. And um, you can follow us on Facebook, SoundCloud, and YouTube. So thanks for listening, guys, and we will see you guys with an extended delay next week as Jim, Ed, and I will all be flying across the world next Monday, so expect a cast later on next week. Have a good one, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.